People get so overwhelmed by all the different areas of our financial life that we need to pay attention to. But if you identify what are your big pain point triggers, I want you to attack those. Learning to navigate the world of personal finance can be daunting. Managing money may feel overwhelming and knowing the right ways to approach budgeting, investing, or handling debt can all seem a bit complicated. My guest today is someone who finds money not only easy to understand, but also enjoyable. Today, we're going to hear from financial expert and author of the Broke Millennial series, Erin Lowry. Erin recently stopped by the studio to share her story of how she became a prominent voice for young entrepreneurs starting out in business and how we can all learn to make financial choices based on the lifestyle we want to live. I'm your host, Chris Allen, and this is the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast, where we help you run and grow a better business. Hey, I just want to say, Aaron Lowry, welcome to the Entrepreneur Studio. It is wonderful to be here. Yeah, so glad you made the trek. Yeah, I love it. Well, you know, we've been kind of chatting along here, and I think that... Uh, you know, when you have the broke millennial on the podcast, you know that it's going to be, I'm going to say, a fun and informational conversation. You know, that's what I try to bring. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've been in a prominent voice in, you know, the personal finance and addressing the finance struggles of millennials for a long time and for solo entrepreneurs or solopreneurs. I'd love to hear you kind of talk about maybe some of the core motivations that led you to bring, you know, this financial health to young entrepreneurs starting out in business. Well, I will also say it's for all of the people. And I say that just because, you know, I, I started talking about personal finance because I found it interesting and it seemed that everybody else was super uncomfortable talking about money. Mm -hmm. And I tend to be the kind of person that's like, oh, this is awkward for people. So let's kick this hornet's nest <laughs> a little bit and see what happens. And not in a way that I ever want to make somebody else feel uncomfortable, but mm -hmm. in a way where money is so enmeshed with our lives. There is almost nothing we can do that isn't somehow related to money. Mm -hmm. Down to, oh, hey, you wanna go hang out with your friends? What are you gonna do? Where are you gonna go? How much is it gonna cost? Oh, you wanna take a vacation? Where are you gonna go? How much is it gonna cost? You wanna buy somebody a gift? How much is it gonna cost? Money just tends to touch our lives at every yeah, point. Yeah, everywhere. And it was so interesting to me, the number of people I knew in my early 20s who just didn't wanna talk about it or starting to realize very quickly how many people maybe were having their lives financially subsidized by their parents. Mm -hmm. And maybe you didn't know that. And all of a sudden that gave you a little bit more clarity about why that person didn't seem to be struggling quite the same way you were. It just is an important conversation. And so for me, I love to write. And this all started really with me wanting to create a blog. I swear it was still relevant back when I started it. I feel like I say blog now and people are like, dinosaur, which you're not wrong. I've been doing it for 11 years, which- Yeah, to, the long form social media. You, you know, know, to Gen Z, I'm ancient. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I was gonna start writing somewhere for fun, even as just a hobby, I had to have a topic and a topic that was just going to be consistent. And I picked personal finance Unbeknownst to me, personal finance blogs were a thing. I had never read one before. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that they were out there. And what was really fun is I started writing and those folks started to find me. And that's actually how I kind of fell backwards into a community that did actually already exist. But I was a very different voice in that community because a lot of people were a little bit older. I started when I was about 23. 
A lot of people were married. Most did not live in a major city. Mm-hmm. And so the advice I was giving was very much colored by the fact that I was a single woman, not making very much money, living in one of the most expensive cities in the entire country, and just trying to figure it out. And I figured that if I told stories about this and also talked about how my parents taught me about money, maybe people would find it interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I love it. I think that to have you be that young and be interested in personal finance, I think that the whole community of personal finance was like probably shocked by that. And I, it, it, this is one of the things that I think, you know, what, what was this 10, 12 years ago? Yep. And now you have a book and whatnot, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I, I think the really, really cool part about what you did is you were one of the people who documented their journey rather than sort of sharing their expertise, right? It was kind of this along the way thing. And that, that's the thing that I got really excited about, about having you kind of come and talk about it is like, tell us about that. Cause we do have, you know, vloggers, we have, you know, now we see people literally document their journey. I'm discovering this and talking about it along the way, but that wasn't going on nearly as much as it is now, 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it was a completely different way to talk about money, especially. And my very first blog post ever actually really mirrors the opening of my first book, Broke Millennial. And it's in the summer of 1997, a Krispy Kreme donut changed my life. And it really is also how the very first blog post happened. And it's telling a story. It's a long story. But when I was a kid, I wanted to have some money. Who remembers Nerf Gun Super Soakers? 100%. Right? So I was a big pool kid. My parents, I was on swim team. My parents were just kind of like drop us off of the pool. And I really wanted a Nerf gun super soaker. Toys R Us, RIP. I guess they're back. I'm a little confused on the Toys R Us journey, E-commerce, to be honest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you had to go buy one at Toys R Us. It made it cost like 16 bucks. My parents were very big on if you wanted to buy something, you had to figure out how to get the money. I'm seven. So pretty limited earning potential at that point. And my mom was having a yard sale, as all suburbanites do. And I had the idea that if people are going to come and buy this like used buns of steel workout video from my parents, maybe they will buy Krispy Kreme donuts from two cute little kids because yeah. I was going to recruit my four-year-old sister. Well, go to my dad, like Shark Tank style before Shark Tank was a thing. Hey, dad, I really want to sell Krispy Kreme donuts. Could you go buy them for me? So he agrees to be my backer. He goes and buys the Krispy Kreme donuts, brings them. I sell out fast. Every time I tell this story, the amount of money I made changes a little bit. Let's say I made 30 bucks. I have all these quarters. I'm so excited. And my dad comes over and he looks at the pile and he's like, all right, well, it cost me $10 to buy the donuts. So I'm going to take 10. And Kaylin, my sister, worked for you for a while. So let's give her $5. So actually your net profit is $15. And then he took the money. Mm-hmm. And that was my Take first, her. well, I mean, great I'm life kidding. lesson, but it was also my first experience. Like maybe things are not as they seem when it comes to money. Yeah. You go back to him later and you're like, Hey dad, you, that was a shark thing to do. You know, you, you at the end of the day needed to do this, help me do this ahead of time. It was my first go around. And I thought I was going to get two Nerf gun super soakers. I only could get the one Nerf Got gun it. super soaker. I should have also known uh, my parents were big on candy tax at mm-hmm. Halloween. Mm-hmm. So when we went out trick-or-treating, come back, dump it out, and they got to pick some pieces because, you know, they went out with us, so we had to pay them a tax. So I really should have seen it coming. But point is, my parents all along the way were very good about these hands-on lessons to truly contextualize money in a way that was 
very relatable and understandable, and then age appropriate. My dad always likes to say he's the villain of all of my stories. Mm-hmm. Not true. Mm-hmm. I mean, like a little bit in that one. But the best gift that my parents ever gave me was the understanding of money, like financial literacy and being able to make very rational financial decisions at a very young age to graduate college ultimately debt-free because I gave up going to my dream school to live my dream life. I went to the school where I got scholarship money Mm -hmm. because I was a journalism theater major. Yeah. I knew, hey, when I graduate college, I'm not looking at a lucrative gig, most Mm -hmm. likely. So if Mm -hmm. I have student loan debt, that's going to mean I'm gonna have to make all of these choices and go after a career that isn't what I want necessarily to make Mm -hmm. these payments. And I could only make those decisions because of what my parents taught me. Yeah. Again, journalism and theater. I am not a math-brained person. Neither are marketing people, apparently. But that was my big thing to folks when I was starting out is that I would hear all of this pushback about like, oh, well, I'm not good at math, so I'm not good at money. I'm like, it's psychology, it's not math. This Mm. is all psychology. I mean, like adding, subtracting a little bit of multiplication and division is helpful, but this is not about math. This is about knowing yourself and knowing how it works. I love that. Well, when you say say broke millennial, how broke was broke? So huge advantage, obviously, to be debt-free. Can't knock that one. I did marry into $50,000 of student loan debt later down, so don't worry, I still got hit with the curse. Mm -hmm. But I was making about $23,000 working three different jobs my first year in New York City. So pretty broke. That's pretty broke in New York City. Yeah. Wow. What is something that like you see people your age, what was kind of the struggle you saw early on and what do you see maybe is different now, you know, 10 years later? That's a great question. I mean, I think Gen Z is wising up a little bit about Mm. some of the things that millennials are like, hey, they told me to do this, so I'm gonna go do this. And they said that good things will happen on the other side. And Gen Z's like, ha ha ha, nope. With millennials specifically, the hard kind of feels the same to be honest. Mm. It sort of feels that every time we get a little bit of a foothold, something just comes back to punch us in the teeth again. It's like, okay, hey, we told you to go to college, go to college, get that degree. Oh no, 08 is happening, major recession, workforce is collapsing, you can't get a job even though you have student loans and all of this other stuff. Sorry. Okay, a little while later, we finally have gotten our footing. We're finally starting to make some money. Hey, maybe we wanna go out and buy a house. Oh, sorry, the housing market's going absolutely insane. And oh, here's a pandemic that's gonna shut the world down for two years. How's it going, guys? And again, it just feels like we keep getting mocked for delaying life milestones, but it also feels like we are not living in the same environment at all. And no generation is, I get it, I get it. Yeah, yeah. everybody's got the struggles. And every generation does have their struggles. However, financially, this is not the same as what other generations had. And it is much harder to get your footing. Even to live a basic, stable, middle-class life is significantly more difficult for our generation than for previous generations. Even the fact that jobs that did not require a bachelor's degree 30 years ago that could give you a middle-class life now requires a bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. And that it is so much harder to buy a house. And okay, boomers, I hear you with your double digit mortgage rates, but if we adjust 
for median cost of living, for median cost of homes, and for median salaries, your gen to our gen, our homes are six times more expensive when adjusting yeah. for inflation. So like, it is not the same, even with your higher interest rates, because that's the first thing that they always want to bring up. Sorry, guys. I mean, they were crazy, but yeah. The, the, they were crazy. The principal amount was uh, different as well. <laughs> That's the big thing. Ours are so much more expensive. Yeah. And it's like census data. I'm not pulling this out of nowhere. And so it is just frustrating that it feels as if we cannot catch a break. Mm -hmm. And every time people get close, it just feels like we get pushed back down the mountain to square run. So that is where I see the struggle changes a little bit in the sense that, okay, maybe when you were first starting out a decade ago, it was my salary is terrible and also I'm having to pay these loans and I'm just trying to build base level stability, create an emergency fund, start putting money into retirement, et cetera, et cetera. A decade down, okay, maybe we've got a little bit more stability. We're making some more money. We've got the right insurance coverage. We have a little bit saved for the future, but it still feels like we kind of keep getting walloped trying to get to mm. the next step and to that next step and it's taking a lot longer than it did previously. Yeah. That's really frustrating. And there's no scrimping, saving your way out of this, to be honest. And that's the other part that I think within the personal finance narrative gets a little bit lost is it still skews very bootstrap and that, well, if I did it, you can do it and everybody can do this. And okay, it's sometimes motivational to hear that and sometimes just really frustrating because you can do everything right and then things outside of your control can happen. So true. I mean, you could have had a, a perfectly funded emergency savings fund. Everything was lined up, but you worked in hospitality and then the pandemic happened. And that went on way longer than three months or six months for yeah, the recommended emergency savings fund. So you might have done everything right and you still didn't get the break that you needed to make the next step happen. Yeah, and emergency funds are typically for sort of uh, one difficult episode and some people get two or three in a row and things like that and surviving those things can get really, really hard. Yeah. Now, I love how you just kind of compared the money math versus psychology. What are some of the most misunderstood things about money that you've discovered? First being that you have to be good at math. And that is a very common narrative that people have in their heads. And so much so that they just don't try in the sense of investing, especially. People feel like, well, you know, I'm not a business person and I don't understand how investing works and I'm not good at math. So like this just isn't for me. Mm -hmm. That is thing one. When it comes especially to, let's just talk about investing for a second. It's just kind of learning the base level of a different language. There is a lot of weird words and jargon that get used in investing that gets thrown around, I think, partially to intimidate dumb money, AKA retail investors like you and me. But one thing I love to bring up to people is, do you have a retirement account? Do you have a 401k or an IRA? You answer. I do. Okay, great. And is that money sitting in cash or is it in the stock market at all? It's diversified across the stock market and some mutual funds, yeah. Yeah, so you're an investor. Mm -hmm. And that is what I like to say to folks is yeah. that people never think about retirement specifically for as sure. investing. Probably because we use the wrong language. We say you're saving for retirement. No, you're not. You're investing for retirement. Well, if you are saving for retirement, we need to have a conversation because your money shouldn't be sitting in cash. It's under my mattress. 
Well, you know, that happens. <laughs> You'd be surprised. It does happen. Or it happens that people have set up a 401k or an IRA but didn't know to pick investments. So it has truly been sitting in cash yeah, yeah. sometimes for years. So mm-hmm. even just having these kind of conversations, if you're listening now, please go check your 401k or IRA and make sure that the money is actually invested and not sitting in cash. How do you know? If it's all in one thing and it says something like cash settlement account, cash fund, money market fund, that's cash. If it hasn't changed much in the last three years, that's cash. Call your brokerage, make sure it's invested. That's my PSA. So that's one really big misconception. The other thing thinking about psychology and money. So kind of tying back to this bootstrap narrative, so many people think it's about willpower when it comes to finance. Oh, just toughen up and do it. Toughen up and save. Toughen up and you know, put a little bit more away. Pick up that extra job. Do what you got to do. And in some ways, that rhetoric isn't wrong. But the other thing that is really important is to understand what are your money triggers? Mm-hmm. We all have them. We all relate to money emotionally. And a lot of people don't want to talk about that side of things, that money really is emotional. If you have a bad day, do you want to go buy something to make yourself feel better? Sneakers. Could be sneakers, Mm -hmm. could be a tangible thing, could be you want to go buy a pint of ice cream because you want to emotionally eat, which is tied into a whole other thing. Could be, and that's me, I love ice cream. It could be that you want to go book a vacation. Like there's so many different ways that people react to all sorts of different stimulus and triggers, but we're all emotional when it comes to our money. And this, here's a fun one for everyone, you can blame on your parents or the people that raised you. And I say that because we were all getting messages about money, whether because our parents talked to us about it directly, or we just observed them, or we heard money fights, or whatever it was. But between the ages of about like eight and 12, kids are coding their relationship to money. So the people that raised you are the people that taught you, directly or not, about how you relate to finances. And for some folks, the way that that can play out is maybe you grew up in a financially chaotic household. Maybe it was something where one year your family was doing great, the next year lights were getting turned off and you had to move. And as an adult, that could either mean that, hey, you are lockdown mode with your money. You know where every dollar is going. You are super frugal. You're an oversaver. Honestly, you find it hard to even spend to have a little fun and live a little because you are reacting the exact opposite way that you were brought up. Or it could be that chaos is your normal. It's frankly where you feel comfortable. So every time you get a little stable, you blow it all up, Mm. you know, subconsciously, but to return back to that point of normalcy in your own brain about what kind of feels good. And I know that sounds crazy, but the number of people that I know who engage in all sorts of behaviors like that and I tend to be a bit overly frugal because to a degree that was modeled for me mm-hmm. as a kid. So sometimes it's hard for me to spend money even on things that seem rational, like, hey, it's pouring rain. Maybe we take a taxi home. Like, heck no, I'm not spending $30 on a cab. I'm getting on the bus for two. Well, now 290 thanks MTA. But yeah, we're a mile and a half from home. Why am I gonna spend $30 on a taxi? And my husband's like, cause it's pouring and the bus won't be here for 15 minutes. And sometimes even my time value of money is skewed because there are certain areas where like, nope, nope, I'm returning to my broke millennial time, even Mm. though technically I've moved on from that. Yeah. How did this become a business? How did it go from a side gig? 
you know, to a business. Three jobs plus a, you know, broke millennial uh, set of content. I really fell backwards into this, you know? That's why I always think it's funny with the, like, how did you strategically figure out how to go from A to B? And I'm in the kind of the entrepreneur camp where it's like, it just sort of happened, which is not the most helpful information mm -hmm. and advice. But for me, one piece of background to know. So I had studied theater and journalism, a double major in college, and I had every intention of moving to New York City and becoming an actress. Like mm -hmm. That was gonna be my journey. I was gonna be in the theater and I fully chickened out. Wow. Yeah, so I got to New York. I got my first job working for The Late Show with David Letterman. So it was, you know, like entertainment adjacent. Mm -hmm. And kind of thought like, well, maybe I'll like meet some people and kind of get the guts to really go for it. And seeing what people were going through firsthand, being one in terms of, you know, having friends who are doing my job, but also trying to, whether it was like be stand-up comedians or be actors or what have you, and be like, wow, this is really hard. And I just would like a stable paycheck and some health insurance because after scraping together, so I went from $23,000 to $37,500 and I felt rich. And I was working in PR as my next job. And during that time is when I was like, okay, this is really boring for me. It was a tech-related PR, so it wasn't even like oh, sexy, fun things to be working on. And that's when I was like, I need a creative outlet. What is cheap? Oh, writing on the internet, that's free. Mm -hmm. And that's really where the original idea in terms of I want a hobby, I want it to be cheap and free. That's how Broke Millennial originally started. So is this a WordPress thing for you? It started as WordPress, okay, yes it did. Go. And then I finally bought the domain. So I was like, hey, you really, this is like a good name. You really need to go buy this domain. Yeah. And eventually kind of migrated to the proper.com and said brokemillennial.wordpress. And during all of that, I was still working in public relations. I also was babysitting on the side, you know, keeping those side hustles up and then starting to write. And I think it's just the term broke millennial was pretty eye-catching, the mm -hmm. SEO was decent. So I started getting media requests to talk about like the state of millennials and blah, 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 blah. And that is partly how it started taking off. And then also I started getting, whether it would be you know, journalists who would reach out or editors and just on, mostly on Twitter. I mean, connections, I'm sorry, ux, but connections back in the day really could be made on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And so people would reach out like, oh, I read this thing that you wrote, this is great. And so I started to, as my mom taught me, ask for the order. So if somebody said, you know, maybe they worked for example, and the now defunct AOL Daily Mail, mm -hmm. and they're like, hey, this is our Daily Finance, Daily Mail. That is a paparazzi magazine, AOL Daily Finance. We just learned so much more about you. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about guilty pleasures <laughs> later. <laughs> but AOL's Daily Finance, and the editor had reached out to me to say, hey, I read this piece on your blog. It was really interesting. And I responded, oh, thank you so much. I would love to write for you if there's any opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that is how I started to get some of my first freelance writing jobs, is just some, somebody That's would awesome. compliment my work. I would say thank you and ask if there was a chance. And that kind of is really what started the ball going in, okay, now there's this blog, which didn't make me any money. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't doing sponsored content at the time. I didn't get into the affiliate link game, which missed opportunity because that made so much money back in the day if you were early enough. And 
I started to write in freelance, so now it's, okay, PR, babysitting, writing on the blog for free, freelance writing. Then I started getting speaking engagements and I was still doing media stuff. So all of these things were happening. So to tie back now to the, okay, I wanted to be an actress and it didn't happen for me. I was then, by then 25, 26, and already had one big career regret that was sitting in my stomach, this idea of, mm. you just should have tried. Like, why didn't you at least give it a go? Mm-hmm. And especially because that's advice that I gave other people. That advice to someone else was part of the impetus for even creating Broke Millennial, a friend of mine who wanted to go make it work as an actress, complaining about like, well, I do is hope that I have enough money at the end of my, the month. And I'm thinking, your parents subsidized your life. You have no student loan debt. Like, go try it. And her being that uncomfortable and coming from that much privilege, like, oh, I need to write about this. So I'm now at a point where Broke Millennial is starting to take off a little bit. I had interviewed at a different PR agency for a, a better paying job. And it was to work ultimately with a, one of the big banks. Mm-hmm. And they called me and said, hey, we love your writing. Like that was part of what they had brought me in. They said, but if you take this job, we do feel like it's a conflict of interest. We're gonna need you to shut it down. And that would have been an increase of maybe Mm $8,000 on my salary. And I thought, I think I can make that side hustling. So I turned it down. And about four months after that, I got a call from a fintech startup about going to work for them. I was like, as long as I can keep broke millennial, I'd be happy to do that. And that is how I started to pivot into working more finance adjacent, Mm -hmm. still could build broke millennial, was making more money working for this fintech startup and learning so much. You know, the co-founders between them had 30 years in banking and they were really interested in educating me and nurturing about like how banking works, kind of the back end tricks and traps of the trade. And I just was able to then amass so much more information and take that and apply that now to Broke Millennial and getting more information out to people about like, hey, let's talk about balance transfers. Let's talk about who they're good for. Let's talk about all of the predatory traps that exist and mm-hmm. what you need to look out for. So, so like really what, informed what, my work. what role were you doing at the FinTech startup? I was a content director. Okay. So then I got burned out because I was doing my side hustle job as, as my day job. Don't recommend that. But long-term, this is all a very long-winded story to get to the point where all of this kind of came together where... I got a really big media opportunity. A literary agent saw me, reached out to me. Hey, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I'm like, yes, I have. And ended up getting a book deal. Well, did a proposal, shopped it around, got a book deal. And that's when I thought, okay, I'm gonna do what they tell you not to do. I'm gonna quit my day job. Do not quit your day job if you get a book deal, unless... unless you have been building up this whole other business on the side. And I did the math, it could sustain me. And if it didn't, I had at least a year's worth of income set aside that I could float myself while I tried to figure it out and get back in the traditional job force. And the actor thing informed the fact that I was like, if I don't do this, I'm gonna regret this so much. I'm not taking another lap. Yeah, I have to do the thing and take the risk and make the bet on myself. And if it all goes up in flames, I'll just go back into the traditional job force. That's an amazing story. And then uh, the book deal happens and you become a multimillionaire. And- uh, 
I wish. But I could make a living, you know, a comfortable yeah, living at that. I think that story of betting on yourself with some intelligence of like, or just, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it is intelligence that I, I was going to say common sense as a no. I, I mean, it, it really does take a self-aware moment to go bet on yourself like that. And you had at least some cushion and then you had, hey, I also have a career, right? I, I have been a director of content before, so I, I can go do that again. And so you never looked back? Not at the traditional job market. I mean, listen, I'd be lying if there weren't <laughs> moments, especially when I'm having to, I don't know, deal with taxes or like a technical issue happens and I'm IT or just like something where if you work for a company, you can just call someone to yeah. help figure it out. There's moments where I'm like, man, it'd be really nice to just have someone else we've figure got, this out. we got people for that, yeah. Yeah, but more or less, I mean, I kind of describe myself as a cowboy at this point. We're like, I don't know if I can go back. I feel like I would go back in, it would be fun and exciting for about, I don't know, four weeks mm -hmm. to do a new job. But in the kind of structure where like, we have to have what kind of meeting now? Why are there 17 different meetings on my schedule today? Are all of these totally necessary? I think this could have been an email. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it would be hard for me to be like, hey guys, I think we could optimize this better. Like, I think I would be that guy and then be like, we don't need you here anymore, thank you. <laughs> you can go, go be a cowboy again. <laughs> uh, back to the old west. Well, it's the thing that I think would be great to hear from you about is you've got this side hustle and you're getting taxed on this money. Mm -hmm. And so did you anticipate this? Like when you had like a really good year and you're like, oh man, yeah, you know, I've, withheld, I've held money back and I know I'm gonna pay my self-employment tax and all that kind of stuff. Did you have a tax surprise or, or were you super prepared? So I write about personal finance. So luckily I was pretty prepared. Good. I did a lot of reading and a lot of research before I jumped into this. And also at the time, because I was doing a day job, and again, I live in New York City, so I get triple text. We've mm -hmm. got federal, state, and the city of New York. So I was already paying so much in taxes. And then also putting a lot into my 401k and my job that that kind of helped subsidize what I was gonna owe on the freelance income and the speaking engagements and everything else I was making. Mm -hmm. And then even though I had a 401k and a day job, I still could open up a SEP IRA mm -hmm. to put some of that freelance money into. But the big thing that was a practice for me then and all the way until I became an S corporation and then my business structure changed a little bit, but one of the things that I would always do every time I got paid, so to also go back to something I said earlier about like, I had a year's worth of living expenses and like, how the heck? My freelance money, my side hustle mm -hmm. money, I lived off of my day job. Everything I earned on my side hustle went into savings or investments. None of it got spent because I kind of was thinking about creating a buffer so I had runway to go do my own thing. Mm -hmm. And every time I got one of those freelance paychecks from then, frankly, until about eight months ago, 40% automatically got put into an account nicknamed Uncle Sam's Money. Because mm -hmm. by the way, did you know you can nickname your bank accounts and oh, yeah. credit unions too? So don't have bank account 567038, not my real number, or anything like that, like create a nickname on it so you know what it's for. 
So I put that money into a high yield savings account so I could make some interest on it while I was just sitting there doing nothing. But that meant that every time I had to write a very painful mm -hmm. check, well, let's be honest, I wasn't doing checks, I was doing digital payments, but anyway, I had the money there. And then I also, the reason I did 40%, which sounds very high, normally people say 30% is what you should set aside for freelance income. I did 40 because A, again, city, state, federal but also SEP IRA. It was kind of forced setting aside retirement contributions as well. So anything that remained after I made quarterly estimated tax payments, I would dump into my SEP. Mm. Be careful though, if that's your strategy, because you don't technically know how much you can put into your SEP IRA until the end of the year. Yeah. So sometimes maybe you over contribute and then have to do this fun backpedal dance with the IRS. So just be mindful when you're putting mm. money into your SEP IRA. Yeah, it's not like the SEP IRA custodian is like, yeah, you contributed too much too often. No, if anything, they're like, this is the max that literally everyone can put in. And yeah. if you don't recognize, I was not maxing it out. That's a big number. But if you don't recognize necessarily that that's the like, hey, the guidelines for everybody, but it's really the lesser. Yeah of this amount of money or 25% of what you're making. Mm -hmm. And it's probably gonna be the 25% unless you're having a really good year. Yeah, so did you do like self-directed or did you let somebody else invest it? I did self-directed, yeah. Okay, what, like, what vendor did you use? I used Vanguard. Okay, Yeah. well, let's talk shop for just a second. Like tax structure wise, how'd you get started from you know being a sole proprietor or did you start off as LLC? What'd you do? Started as LLC. Like from day one, when you started making your first dollar? No, from okay, okay. I'm now gonna leap into self-employment. Okay, so it. when I was working just you know side hustling freelance stuff, I mean, my social security number was all over the place because yeah, I kept yeah. having to fill out every form. And uh, by the way, password protect those PDFs and then just have the person on the other end of payroll give you a call or send you a text and you can tell them the password and then it's in their inbox as password protected. Just a thought as somebody whose social security number might have gotten compromised at some point. Cheers. Yeah, you know, it's a delightful side effect of being a freelancer. But I started really, this is one area, the, the legal structure I would say I was not as prepared mm -hmm. as I was for the tax side of things. One, because it feels overwhelming and it also feels like there aren't very many even like books, articles, websites that provide clear, jargon-free information. Because also, just like with personal finance, the answer is usually it depends. It depends on where you live. It depends on how much you're making, the kind of business that you run. So I felt like everything that I read, it's like, yeah, but you know, at the end of the day, it just depends. I'm like, okay, but what do I do? I don't, I don't know how to set this up. So I did end up hiring an accountant pretty early into, I mean, immediately into self-employment, but about a year prior, even though I still had my day job, just because things were getting a little too complicated. And then also once I started doing speaking engagements in other states, if I made enough money, I had to pay tax to that individual state, not just the state of New York where I lived which was really fun in the pandemic when things were on Zoom and yeah. certain states tried to be like, we're coming for you. I'm like, no, you're not. I did not step foot in your state. This is not like a basketball player who is playing in your state. <laughs> exactly. I wasn't there. So 
that was a big part of the beginning is just like starting to hire the right people to that knew this better than I did and could help give me information. My accountant, bless him, did try to get me to become an S corporation probably like two years before I did it. And that was a me just being like, oh, this feels like a lot of work. And the way that I'm doing things now, I don't know, it's fine, it's working. And then, I don't know, the S corporation thing, just, it feels like- It's a lot of overhead. A lot of overhead, a lot of legal stuff minutes, I'm gonna have to yeah. deal with. Like, I don't know that this is the right thing to do. And then last year he's like, it would have saved you like $25,000 to be an S corporation. I'm like, okay, let's be an S corporation. See, that, that's strange to me. Like, didn't he just say file your S election on your LLC? No, I don't remember, to be honest, this is also where I'm just like, taxes is mm -hmm. my part of finance, where my yeah, brain just yeah, starts yeah. to be like, wah, wah, that and health insurance. Um, I don't remember what the reason was, yeah. but there was a reason. Mm, okay, yeah. I cannot tell you what it was though, which feels bad on me as a personal finance writer, but we can't be experts in everything, guys. Not in everything, <laughs> not in everything. Yeah, and the whole payroll thing that you gotta do with uh, S Corp is, is, a, is you know, yeah. all the withholdings and having to run payroll and all that kind of stuff. And you, especially if you're a solopreneur, it's like, But ugh. the fact that there's, you know, companies designed to help you figure that out and to do that and then make all of those payments for you. It's mm -hmm. not like every time I have to go in and be like, this amount of tax is going to the government. This totally. amount of tax is going to the city and state. So it ended up being a bit easier than I expected. A bit, mm -hmm. you know, it's a bit of a headache as well. But on the flip side, I think it's also important to look out long-term in your personal life about what do you want? Because I will say there are moments of being a freelancer or solopreneur, because that's what I should call myself instead of a freelancer, is a huge pain. And those are when you are trying to rent an apartment or buy a place because you don't have the pay stubs to show. Yeah. And most landlords or depending on like mortgage companies or what have you, one year of tax returns is certainly not gonna be enough because every year can be volatile. So you usually need to provide several. You want that credit score to be nice and healthy. Like there's just so many other factors that I feel like we have to think about and sort of play defense against. Have an accountant because then they can write a letter on your behalf, which mm -hmm. is always nice. But becoming an S corporation and then having those pay stubs and having, even if it's like, hey, I'm Aaron Lowry, employed by Lowry Media LLC. Uh, it's my dad's company, I swear. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny because, hey, it's all me, it's all my money, yeah. but having that structure just makes people feel better. Yeah who are gonna you know, give you a loan or be your landlord or what have you. So that is something to consider if you're in a place in your life where you're like, yeah, you know, I might be a year or so away from wanting to buy a house. It could make your life easier if it makes sense financially to restructure your business in a way that you are now an employee of yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the two years of tax returns and being self-employed and all that kind of stuff, it's, uh, it's, it's really, not an easy, not an easy thing to do. You feel like I, I remember when when I was running a, a business and it was you know that's how I was making money it was it was my own company. I, I I felt like things were like the the system was against me. Mm -hmm. It the system is really designed for being an employee, right? I mean, if you think about it, there are people that can go buy a house, 
They have a little bit of money saved. I mean, back in the day, you didn't have, need any money. You get 100% uh, of the principal paid for, right? You could borrow 100% uh, stated income, stated assets loan. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have any money. All they had, they just got a job and it's like they've got two pay stubs and they can buy a house. But you have somebody that's literally been proving like, I, I know how to make money and I've only been doing it for 18 months. You're saying I got to wait another six months and get a tax return done before, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, those are the things that I just don't, I don't it, it, the system really definitely is designed to be an employee. Yes, well, and two things about that. One, I think being an entrepreneur in this country is incredibly difficult for the fact that it feels like we're a country that was built on this premise of like, you can build your own dream. Yeah. Yeah, every step along the way, it truly is designed to just be like, oh, you work for yourself? Here's a bureaucratic website you have to go to to figure out how to do this thing that we want you to do. But by the way, this thing was designed in 1992 and hasn't been updated and like, oop, it's just gonna keep breaking down. I, could someone just create a centralized place for all of these bureaucratic entities to input their information, then you can go to the one place. The fact that I moved and could not go to a central place to update my address all over the place and I'm like, Okay, but does the IRS know to send any notices to my new address since I updated Aaron Lowry, but now do I have to update like sole member Lowry Media LLC? How do I do that? I will say irs.gov is a pretty great website, very much in layman's terms. I will put that out there for people who are stressed about tax stuff, just go directly to the source. They actually do a pretty good job. So all of that I think is incredibly frustrating. The other part too is I think self-employed people are not given enough credit for the amount of hustle because we usually don't have one stream of income. We usually have a lot of streams of income and know how to go find another one if necessary. A traditionally employed person loses their job and it can take months and months to get a new job in their field, especially the higher up the ladder that you go. So it's always been really frustrating for me when people are like, well, we don't trust the money that you're making because it can be volatile. And I was like, you know what else is volatile? Working in tech with a huge layoffs that are happening right now. But you're gonna trust that person's job who just has the one salary against mine with these six different streams of income that are coming in and likely aren't all to get turned off at the same time. Yeah. And also I know how to go out and find work. It's been my job for the last 10 years. It's totally accurate. And everybody's like, dude, you guys are literally venting. I'm like, you know, there's <laughs> scars, there's things that have happened, right? And I will say that, you know, any entrepreneur or solopreneur listening is like, exactly, exactly, you know? The, the thing that I have found is if you are in discovery mode, right? And you don't have a coach or a mentor or some person that's willing to help you along the way or a CPA, because they're really busy and... If you don't have that, you really do pay the toll of discovery. You Mm -hmm. pay this extra amount of money to finally figure it out over time. And that's the thing that I think is really, really, I'm gonna say challenging about the small business environment is that there's not an easy button. Figuring out how to make the money is one thing. Figuring out how to protect make it, you know, provide security, financial future to keep as much money in your pocket as possible and not going to other entities and stuff like that. There should be an easy button for that. Yeah. I mean, there's just not. And also I will say in defense of the solopreneur, 
The thing that's also nice about that is that you're caring for yourself. I completely understand why people want to build a whole business that can scale and have a bunch of employees and maybe eventually get acquired. That is one obviously successful model that can work for folks. But being a party of one, or maybe you and like a virtual assistant or something, which again, figure out when you're structuring your company, if you hire people, what's that going to look like? If you set up SEP IRAs and then you hire people full time and then you need to provide them with one and have a match, just like know what you're doing along the way. But being a party of one can make some of the headache a little better Mm -hmm. because you are just figuring it out, what that means for you as opposed to how does this one decision I make ripple out and impact absolutely everybody in this company. And that is not me giving advice to hold yourself back or not to scale, but that sometimes if you're just building a lifestyle that you want and the work that you're doing is funding that lifestyle, it's also okay to stay where you are. I think sometimes, again, we get this messaging where it's like, we're not doing it right if you aren't scaling and growing and making this huge business. Again, different headaches, right? New level, new devil, to Mm -hmm. keep using cliches. Like Mm -hmm. it is something you have to think about is what type of work-life balance do you want within entrepreneurship? Because you are never off. Like vacations, true vacations, like don't really exist because you can't totally have an out of office depending on how you structure your company. Yeah. You might be able to grow to a point where yeah, you can because there's enough people behind you who can like really hold it all down. That takes a really long time yeah. to get to that level. So just kind of thinking about what is the lifestyle that you want within your job and outside of your job. And I don't think there's any shame in being a party of one or even just a very small tight knit company that isn't interested in huge amount of scale and growth. And the last plug I will also make on this, you know, we were just venting a little bit about all the different structures. If you find that it's too much, that this is just sucking the joy out of the other parts, there is no shame in going back to traditional employment. You know, I think sometimes people are like, you failed. You failed as an entrepreneur. I've said that many times on the show that I've done that. Yeah, but like, (laughs) Who cares? Go do what is right for you. Or like, hey, maybe it's just because you're reaching a phase in life where, oh, wow, if I, all right, let's use people having kids as an example. I'm a millennial. It's happening left, right, and center. Let's say that you're realizing, oh, wow, I'm a woman. I'm self-employed. I would fund my own maternity leave. That sounds really expensive. Well, how about if I just go back into the traditional workforce for a year or two and they can fund my maternity leave and give me better health care than maybe I could have afforded myself being self-employed, start this new phase of my life with a little bit of more structure, a little bit better benefits, and then maybe eventually I return to my entrepreneurship life. There's absolutely no shame in that. Yeah, I mean, everybody's got to have a plan, you know, and, and one that works for them. I think one of the things I'd love to hear from you is kind of like your distilled checklist of starting a business. You know what I mean? What is your like number one, number two, number three? You know what I mean? What is what yeah. is the broke millennial how to start a business well, checklist? Following my playbook, it would be have a day job and moonlight if you legally can, preferably in something that's not totally related to your day job so you're not getting yourself in trouble. But have a paycheck that's covering your needs 
and then start playing around with your business idea on the side and let it prove itself. Actually start making some real money off of that thing before you quit your day job and go full on with the job that Mm -hmm. you would like to do. Also disabuse yourself of the notion that if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Who came up with that? I'm sorry, it is still work. I love my job, but there are days because I'm an entrepreneur that I'm having to do the tedious tasks that otherwise maybe some HR department or IT department would be handling. Or like a whole day is taken up by really annoying nonsense or meetings or errands or what have you. I still love my job, but I do work. It is still work. So that would be the other thing, is don't go in two rose-colored glasses about what the experience is gonna be like. Create a team early. And I don't mean necessarily hiring a bunch of employees, but finding the right kind of lawyers, finding the right CPA for your business, figuring out what kind of structure you wanna create for your benefits. Like, are you gonna use a third-party company that can create you know, payroll for you, benefits plans for you? How you're going to have health insurance? How are you going to have a retirement plan? Everything that your employer provides, how are you gonna replicate that by yourself? Look into all of that before you take the leap. Because again, it's a bit of a headache and a bit tedious when you're first starting out. So it's really nice to have some of the information and some of the team lined up. Also protect your assets. Be trademarking the right things, copywriting things. If you need a patent, do patents. Like get all of that done very early. And have some sort of a mastermind group. Whether it's you're finding a mentor, whether it's you're finding people who are a little bit further along than you or maybe at the same level that you can get together with and talk, wildly important. And finally, ask people how much they make. Also, if you're traditionally employed, please ask people how much they make. But if you are self-employed, be talking to people about what they're charging for certain things, how much they're earning on certain types of business. You know, for me personally, it's something along the lines of, oh, I have this speaking engagement. I'm going to ask a friend of mine who did something similar how much she charged so I know whether or not the rate that I'm about to quote is what the market will bear. Am I going to massively over or undercharge for this thing? I had a wonderful learning experience about six years ago. It was like the universe. No, it was longer than that. I was still traditionally employed when this happened. It was probably eight years ago. It was like the universe was trying to teach me a lesson. A friend, like a dear friend of mine and I were going to speak on a panel for a financial institution. We were both flying from New York City across the country We're on the same flight. She is two years older than I am. We had pretty much the same amount of experience in the space, but she had an agent and I didn't. And I was still working a day job and she was never traditionally employed because she was actually an actress before everything started. So we get to our destination, we're out to dinner. I had had some liquid courage. I was like, hey. So the question comes up. How much did you charge for this? And she goes, oh, I'm making 10 all in. So $10,000 for this gig that we're doing. You want to guess how much I was making? Uh, $1,500. A little more, $3,500. Good for you. Thank you. But that was a really painful gap. Yeah. And one, I appreciated so much that she felt very comfortable sharing the information. But two, it was really proving to me 
what the market would actually bear and mm. how these talents were actually valued. And part of it was colored by the fact that I was still traditionally employed. So somebody asking me, hey, will you fly across the country? We'll pay for it to come and talk about a thing that you love talking about on this panel. And I was like, And apologetically, uh, you're like, I'll charge. Yeah, I was like, I don't know, does $3,500 sound okay? And they're like, yep, sounds great. And I am still a work in progress, honestly, with things about rates. Yeah. And it's so helpful to talk to other people. And if a person feels really uncomfortable, if you ask them directly, say, okay, well, I'm going up for this job or I'm sending out this RFP on this. Could you tell me, would it be over or under $1,500 you would charge, over under $20,000 you would charge, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Let Try them it ballpark on. it. Mm -hmm. And some people might just turn around and be like, I directly would charge this much. And some people might say, oh, I would charge more. Raise it over under 25, over under 30. Like get them to the actual ballpark number so that you have that information. But particularly with self-employed people and freelancers especially, financial knowledge is so much power. And I really believe that a rising tide lifts all boats in the sense that knowing what other people are charging and other people charging what you feel you're worth is only going to help you continue to get paid what you're worth. Because if other people are out there undercutting left, right, and center, it's gonna be harder for you to get what you believe you should be paid to be paid fairly. Yeah. Well, that's a huge lesson. I mean, you know, think about a restaurant out there. If they've, uh, let's let's say they're a counter service restaurant, you know, they're charging average tickets, 15, you know, $20. And then they decide to do catering. It's like, well, how much do I charge? Do I use my prices and just do the multiples? You know, and these are the things that you really, I love that you said you need a mastermind group. You really do need a, your own micro community of people who get your thing or have your thing adjacent or have been through something similar that can go, no, wait, think about it more like this. And reframing all of that, um, or like what you're saying is asking people what they charge for their products. I, I think that that is huge. I, I love asking people, what's your loss leader? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? How do you do a sort of cross sell? How do you upsell people, right? Do you have a freemium model? I love talking about models, right? Yep. And I think that everyone should have a group of people that really can, so you can socialize, have a sounding board, you know, to have some level of like proof or evidence that what you're doing isn't crazy. I would also say if everyone in your mastermind group looks like you, you're doing it wrong. Mm. And I say that because diversity of information is wildly important. And it's really informative to have people who have different life experience than you do, particularly people of different ages than you are. If you're an older person, have some younger folks in there who can give you some ideas. And if you're younger, have that wisdom in the room. It is so important to look to try to create a diverse group. And you can be a multiple masterminds. Like if you wanna have one that's more like your buddies of your age who are all going through a similar life experience and maybe you're getting together, you know, two times a month just more to like vent and share stories, mm -hmm. totally fine. But also make sure that you're creating a group that really can be a mastermind that is providing all sorts of different insights and information and that you can also be of service to other people in that group. And don't think just because, oh, I don't have as much experience as other people, you aren't of value to them as well. The fact that you have a totally different perspective from them can be incredibly valuable and ultimately lucrative. Yeah, yeah. So do you recommend people pay 
Like, what would you say for, hey, if you found a mastermind that was, had a couple of boxes checked, how much do you, like what boxes would you need to be checked and how much would you pay to be a part of the mastermind? I've actually never paid to be part of a mastermind, interestingly. Everyone that I've been in has kind of come about organically from people who have certain pain points or people I've just reached out to to say, hey, I think it would be really beneficial for us all to get together either in person if we live near each other. But again, geographic diversity is a very helpful thing to add to these things. So usually on Zoom or Google Meet. Mm -hmm. And I think too, if you're doing it in a way that is conducive to people's schedules, so maybe not weekly, maybe it's monthly or you know every other week, that can be really helpful. But I think there is merit certainly to paying for certain ones to get access to certain yeah, people. Yeah, 100%. And think critically though about the true ROI of what you're investing. The one workshop, I did do a workshop once where it was for authors Technically, the workshop was more about getting the book deal, but they also talked a lot about branding. I had just gotten my first book deal when I did this workshop. And I wanna say it cost me $5,000, I think. I saw who I was gonna be in the room with. I knew the person who was leading the workshop, who was a big name in the personal finance space. If I even just got her to blurb my book, I was gonna see a return on my investment. But more importantly, the other people that she was bringing in to speak, if I was able to make an in-person connection with them and then be able to follow up and talk to them in the future, that was going to be valuable. And so that is a relationship that I still, I, I had lunch with her just a couple of months ago. Like it is a relationship that I have cultivated and I have so much respect for this woman and you know, She knew who I was prior, but me being in the workshop and actually getting to know her one-on-one completely changed the game. Yeah, I mean, paying for that kind of proximity uh, can really, really help. And But the thing that I like is that you gotta have kind of the gusto that you have, which is like sort of like the ask, right? You gotta go introduce yourself. You gotta go ask the question. You know, you, you have to put yourself out there. And that's a pretty wonderful lesson where you're like, I didn't do it. I chickened out on one thing and I'm not gonna let that happen again. But being able to be kind of in close proximity for some remarkable people, especially that are in the trajectory uh, or maybe in in sort of an advancement of where you're trying to head, it's important to be around those people and other people that are like you that are trying to be around those people because those people are likely to be, uh, you know, huge influences in the future as well. I would say networking is one of the best skills that you could be honing. Networking and then also, if you are uncomfortable speaking in front of people, do either an improv class or Toastmasters. Like do one of them. Because feeling comfortable speaking in front of large groups, even if it's in a room where you're doing a workshop or you're going to a mastermind, if you're not comfortable speaking in front of other folks, it's going to lessen the experience that you're going to get to have and therefore probably lessen the networking opportunities you're going to get to have. So put yourself in a situation where you might feel a little uncomfortable, but that's going to have a long-term gain. Improv classes, I'm telling you, try it. Especially if the idea of it just makes you shudder because it is such a good contained experience of putting yourself in an uncomfortable space for growth. Like the only way we're gonna grow is to be uncomfortable at certain points. 
And it also makes you learn how to have to kind of fire faster in your brain. Like you're gonna have to be able to respond to somebody quickly. And you'd be surprised where that ends up paying dividends. And it makes you think creatively, especially if you feel like, eh, I'm not a creative person. I'm more of, you know, like a technical person or a numbers person. Like creativity, that's not my thing. Give it a go, give it a try. But networking in a way that feels genuine, feels authentic, which I know is just like buzzwords to say around networking, but more importantly, how can you be of service and of help to the person you're trying to network with? I swear if you send an email that says, I would love to pick your brain, you're doing it wrong. Even if it's like, I'd love to buy you coffee and pick your brain, I'm sorry, my brain and my time is worth more than that $6 latte that you're gonna buy me. Mm -hmm. Do not go that route. But if you come with some sort of act of service and the idea of, hey, I was looking at your website and I you know, really admire that you've done this, this, and this, but I was also thinking, I actually have a really good expertise in this kind of logo design. I would love to mock up a logo example for you. And I would also love to chat with you for a little bit if you have some time. How can you be of service to someone? How can you help someone? Even you might worry like, oh no, they're gonna be offended if I say something like that, all right, then find a different thing, but find a way in that doesn't just feel like you want from them, but you're also providing benefit to them as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the give and take really matters. Like if you're a, only a taker, you know, um, you're only gonna get so far, you know, and, and you're gonna burn a lot of people out. Uh, I mean, I think that's a really important aspect to business, I'd say, is you only have a community if you're giving to the community. Right, mm -hmm. and you can only benefit from it if you're giving to it as well. And you know those networking events that you go to, and you, maybe some of them you'll pay to be there. And everybody's just—it's so artificial, you know. So if you can make it, have the authenticity of who you are and what you're looking to contribute, and knowing that over time, not in an instant, will you get a benefit for that relationship. I think that 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 reframes sort of networking for a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. I would say in most cases, it's going to take quite a few touch points to get what you perceive as a tangible benefit, even though you'll be very surprised whatever seeds you're kind of sowing early on, how that can come back in the future to be really beneficial, especially if you're on the more, I've progressed further in my career end of the spectrum, are you putting a hand back to help other people? Because mm -hmm. you do not know where those people are going. And let me tell you, mentoring people who are younger than you, whether it is age-wise or professionally in their career in your space, wildly beneficial and helpful too. Well, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten from uh, maybe a mentor or in, in sort of a relationship like that? You know, it's not gonna be a mentor one and I technically already mentioned it earlier, but it was my mom telling me to ask for the order. You know, that was something that she told me in my high school life. Technically it was about a sports team related thing with a coach, but it was so life-changing and you know, not to make this a huge gendered conversation, but I think sometimes women don't tend to advocate for themselves as much or in the same kind of way. And I work in what is very much a male dominated space also. Mm -hmm. So feeling comfortable enough to put my hand in the air and ask for what I want matters and has made huge differences in my career. Especially, it doesn't have to come off as any sort of like flex or brag or anything like that. Again, going back to the Twitter experience, somebody complimented my work, I said thank you and asked if there were opportunities where they worked to write. 
Anything like that, asking for what you want can make a huge difference. And it's not like a manifesting it, writing it down, asking the universe. It is asking the person who can give you the thing for what you want. And also putting in the work to get yourself into a situation that you should be getting the thing that you want. You know, I think that that makes a really big impression to doing the work. Like even just when people are trying to get a job, the people that we interview, like making someone ask you the questions or to give a pitch is one thing. And there's a, there's a, a dance, you know, to that, you know, uh, in rehearsal of all of that. But when somebody's put in the work and they're like, I did, I looked at your thing and this is the job you're asking me to do. And here's some, here's something I did to show you what I'm capable of and it adds valuable value to you. That's doing the work, right? You asking for, hey, where can I go right? You're like, hey, where can I go get some more work? Where can I do some more work? And you're not saying, where can I go make money writing? You're like, hey, where's an opportunity for me to go be a contributor, right? To get experience or to do whatever. The, the doing the work, I think is, an, an unsung hero of, uh, or a big secret, if you will, that a lot of people don't really get and they aren't willing to do. And if you are gonna be an entrepreneur, you're gonna have to do some sort of free work, if you will. Not necessarily that uh, it needs to be free, but like, uh, what I'm, not, I'm not saying, you know, do what you're great at for free. But what I am saying is at the beginning, there are gonna be some things you're gonna need to do gratis to get someone's attention or to get the next thing. And I don't know if a lot of people are resourceful enough or thoughtful enough to think about some of those things. And to kind of combine that with the networking aspect, the other thing too is as you progress in your career, let's say there's an opportunity that comes your way that either because of timing or whatever is not the right fit for you. A two-prong way to network is that person reaches out to you, hey, we'd love for you to do this gig. And you say, oh, you know, unfortunately, that doesn't really work well for my schedule right now. But here's three other people who I think would actually be an excellent fit for this. So you are providing a service to the person who reached out to you in the first place. And they all appreciate that. And they might come back to you in the future because of it. Mm -hmm. The other part is you are passing along some names of people who actually could benefit from the work or turning around and saying to a friend, hey, somebody just approached me about this opportunity. It's not right for me. I passed your name along, but definitely recommend you go reach out to them as well or you know, make sure that you're known. Doing that is also just an interesting, subtle way to network where most of the time too, the person that you say like, hey, Julie, sorry, I can't do this opportunity right now, but you know, here's Sally, Jack and Grace there are their names. And then when Julie reaches out to them, they'll probably be like, hey, Aaron referred you for this gig. So mm-hmm. you don't even have to tell them that you referred them. They'll find out. They will. And that's great networking. It really is. And I, I think one of the things that's really awesome is those stories, the success stories that we're hearing from you and, and these other people that you're sort of passing the benefit to. You know, you've written a book and I think, and obviously all of the blogging that you've done and all the micro blogging on social that you've done, there's gotta be a story that you could share with us of somebody who sort of followed your advice and went from sort of A to B. What, what can you tell us a story of somebody that followed your advice and did Got something? Got a few. So one of my favorites, my first book and my third book both have a negotiating advice in them. The first book, it's more of me sharing a story about how I negotiated at my fintech job and 
basically, I went in with such a low anchor point on what my salary was there because I had not been getting paid well before. I'd been making 23,000 to 37,5. So when I went in, they're like, how much do you want? I was like, 50. I'm like, okay. I'm like, darn it. Left money on the table. <laughs> and about a year later, I had, you know, really then proven myself and done a lot of work. And I went in and asked for what ended up being a $20,000 increase and demonstrated why I felt I deserved it, et cetera, et cetera. So I would share this story a lot and give examples about here's ways to negotiate where I can also feel collaborative, but you're demonstrating what your worth is and how to ask and ask for the order and advocate for yourself. So that is in the first book. There is far more nuanced information about that and asking other people how much they get paid and Broke Millennial Talks Money, which is my third book. But one of my bosses who was in the negotiation of that fintech company was telling me a story once. This was maybe a year after Broke Millennial, the first book came out. He's like, you know, my girlfriend read your book and then uh, went in to negotiate at her job. And this guy is like, very non-emotional with how he talks anyway. So I was like, he's either winding me up or this is just like him, you know, giving his tone. Like, yeah. Um, so she used your advice to negotiate. Like, and? He goes, yeah, she got a $10,000 increase in her salary. And I was like, okay, why are we winding me up? <laughs> that this was like, and then she got fired. Oh, no. So that one was great. And I have had a lot of people reach out over the years, especially on the how to ask a coworker how much they make, particularly for traditionally employed people, about how that made a huge difference in how much they were looking for in a next job or going in to negotiate on their current job, and also for freelancers as well. But I think, too, one of my other favorite stories, and this is like a cautionary tale of horror, to tie back to my PSA on is your money invested in your 401k? I wrote about that a lot in Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, which is book two. And I wrote that book mostly in response to people saying, hey, you recommended all these investing books in your first book, and I checked them out of the library, and they're super complicated, and I still don't understand how investing works. Got anything simpler? I'm like, no, I'm going to write it. So I'm going to take you all the way back to, I assume you don't even know what an index fund is level. And that's really where the second book starts from this place of, Here's the jargon. We're going to assume we're all like actually not speaking this language yet. Let's progress to speaking it and then learning how to use it. So in it, I do this whole you know, soapbox speech about, hey, it's investing for retirement, not saving for retirement. This is so important. You need to understand this. And then I started posting about it on Instagram. And I had a woman DM me like minutes after I had posted about it, said, I just checked my 401k that I've had for three years at this company. And you're right, it is sitting in cash. So I'm now gonna go make sure that it's invested. And I still hear from her every once in a while. Anytime I do like little PSA, she'll be like, yeah, go tell them. Also, that was like 2019. So I feel like it did well for a while. And then she was probably like, why did I listen to her? <laughs> and now she's like, all right, I'm glad I listened to her. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, you are three books in. What's the next big thing you're gonna tackle? Figuring out what's next. Okay. You know, that's sort of a very vague answer for you. Um, but I think I'm also in a space where in terms of growing in your career, one thing that I feel is that's really hard for entrepreneurs 
because there's no ladder or career map for us, Mm -hmm. it can be really hard to know when and how to pivot, especially if you've been having success. Like it might feel strange to think like, well, this, this entity that I've created is very successful. I'm just gonna leave it. Mm-hmm. What a strange thing to do. But when you're in a traditional job, there can be more of a linear path where it makes sense like these are the promotions and this is what I'm trying to ascend to. You know, almost 11 years ago, I created what became a brand in a company called Broke Millennial. And it really described where I was in my life at mm-hmm. the time. I'm not there anymore. You know, I am not a broke millennial anymore. And I always said that the brand, the reason it wasn't the broke millennial and just broke millennial is because it's not about me, it's about the generation. There will always be people who feel like they're broke millennials. Even as if you're making money, it still can feel that way, which I stand behind. But I'm also at a phase where I would like to try something else. I want a new challenge. I talked about Mm. how growth really happens when you go outside of your comfort zone. This is my comfort zone. I've been here for over a decade now. I want to try something else. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that something else is yet. And also it's really scary to walk away from something that you've created. And because I don't want to shut it down and I don't want to kill it, I want it to still exist. It is a product that is very much of service to people still and helpful for people. It's got a whole community. Yeah, and so Mm -hmm. I don't want it to go away, but I want space to be able to also do something else. So that is an interesting growing pain that I'm experiencing right now where how can I leave my comfort zone without damaging or killing what Mm, has gotten me to this point? Man, that's interesting. I could see you becoming a travel blogger. (laughs) Listen, don't tempt me. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's really good. Well, you know, we've talked about a lot of things. I, I kind of want to put a wrapper on the conversation for a couple of different reasons. One, I think it'd be super helpful. You've referred to these seasons, these sort of financial seasons. What advice would you give to somebody that is going through kind of these? Like, what's the one thing somebody can do to sort of not just weather the storm of one? you know, uh, macroeconomic crisis, right? Um, Cause you talked about a couple of them. What's one thing that somebody really can do or a mindset that they need to have to sort of weather the, the multiple storms for long-term success? Oh, it's such a good question with no simple answer. I'm gonna tie back to the psychology of money though and say, There is no one size fits all answer to a question like that because what makes me sleep at night is gonna be different than what makes you sleep at night and what makes a person listening to this who's like, oh, that was a gut punch of a question because it stresses me out to think about sleep at night. Mm -hmm. That is more what I would recommend you start to identify for yourself is what amount of money makes you feel comfortable to live a baseline life, which is a weird way to word that. I call it bare essential living expenses. Like that's how you find your emergency savings fund. It's not like you living your life at its best. It's keeping the lights on, paying rent or mortgage, daycare, transportation, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things that you need to live, what's that number? Now multiply it by the amount of months that makes you sleep at night. For some people, it might be three. For some people, it might be six. For some people, it might be 24. I I would say also depends on the volatility of the job that you do. Find that number. I would say first, that's the number you wanna work towards in terms of just like cash in the bank that makes you psychologically comfortable. 
then start to get pretty aggressive about investing beyond that, I would say. Please invest, please. <laughs> the other thing too that I don't feel like we talk enough about, especially in personal finance, is what is your social safety net? You know, we, we talk a lot about like, here's how you can save and invest your way to financial independence and security for yourself, which obviously is super important. But what does your safety net look like outside of your finances? If everything went sideways tomorrow for you, who can you call to stay in their home? Who can network you into a job? Whose car can you borrow? Who could watch your kids when you need to go out looking for a job or handle something else that's happening in the family? Who can provide care for you if something happens to you personally? Also, do you have the right insurance coverage for different things that happen? I think people get so overwhelmed by all the different areas of our financial life that we need to pay attention to that they kind of just shut down and don't take care of any of it. But if you identify what are your big pain point triggers, psychologically speaking, when it comes to money, I want you to attack those. Those are the really important things to take care of because when seasons of life happen, and they will, there will be some times where everything is just going great and perfect. And then sometimes where it's like, not just the one thing, but like the one thing happens and then 25 things happen after that that makes you feel like, I just cannot catch a break. So socially, who else can be there for you when those happen? What, who is your community? And if it's not friends and family member, like literally in your community, what are the services that are available to you? Mm -hmm. Just having that written down somewhere might be the mental safety net that you need. And then what is the amount of money that makes you sleep at night? And spoiler, because of the hedonic treadmill, every time we start to earn more, that number tends to go up and up and up. So just be mindful of lifestyle creep, be mindful of all of that. Frankly, you can get yourself into a mindset where truly you never have enough money. I'm just saying, what is the baseline amount that you need to put your head on the pillow at night and feel some level of security? Figure out that number for yourself. It's a great advice, super great advice. What's, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Instagram, I'm at Broke Millennial Blog. Somebody was sitting on Broke Millennial all those years ago, you know? So blog got tacked on. But Broke Millennial Blog, uh, millennial is spelled with two N's, by the way. Sometimes that trips people up. And uh, website is brokemillennial.com, or you can email me, Aaron at brokemillennial.com. That is my direct email address. And if you get a bounce back, again, double check the spelling of millennial. You'd be surprised. <laughs> That's so good, so good. Well, I've asked you a lot of questions about your topic and who you are and whatnot, but I think it would be really helpful to get to know a different side of you with some what we call rapid fire questions. Let's go. Are you ready? All right, describe a student loan in three words. Legal entrapment, I guess I would say. <laughs> I love that answer. What's the guiltiest pleasure that you actually spend money on? Ooh, I mean, Really high quality dairy products would be an interesting answer to this one, which would be one. Uh, I love milk. Did I spend $32 the other day on two pints of ice cream? Yes, I did. And not to throw a previous guest potentially under the bus, but uh, you had Danny Meyer on his daughter's Cafe Pana. Oh, it's so good. Guys, I am an ice cream savant. It is so good. <laughs> 
but it's not very close to my house. And the place that sells it near my house adds like three extra dollars per pint on and it doesn't matter. I'll still pay it. Wow. Okay. That's good to know. I, I would, I was not expecting dairy. Well, what uh, charitable cause are you passionate about? Oh, uh, I would say a few. Definitely, my husband's a teacher. Things related to education, particularly about making sure the kids who maybe don't have access to certain clubs, particularly arts programs, writing programs, can get access. Dogs are very close to my heart, so all sorts of different animal rescue organizations, and then. Um, I also, for anybody who lives in a city that has a high amount of unhoused populations, obviously there can be great resources in your city to donate money to, but the other thing too, kindness and dignity, like looking somebody in the eye and just saying hello, huge. But particularly different times of the year, just creating your own at-home kits to hand out to folks and just make sure that people in your area are getting resources, incredibly important. So some of what I do has less to do with working with organizations or donating, and it's more about like time and creating things myself and like getting into my community as well. Okay. Well, other than personal finance, if you had to do a TED talk, what would it be on? How to have uncomfortable conversations. Oh, I like that. I would say. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. This one's random. It's on the list, and we're all trying to figure out where it came from, but Christmas trees, real or fake? Oh, fake, hardcore fake. I actually feel so strongly about this. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> oddly enough, feel so strongly. I don't understand why anyone does a real Christmas tree. Uh, partly, listen, I live in New York City trying to get a real Christmas tree to my house. Major pain in the butt. I have a dog. She loves sticks. I think that is just taunting her in such a cruel way. I also don't use it. My parents might have actually been living right here in Oklahoma City when this happened, but famously my family had fake trees because my parents one time did a real tree and their boy dog kept peeing on it. So from then on, fake trees all the way in my house growing up. So that's just how I grew up. But also it just like, what is the payoff for having to go I, okay, it smells nice. You can get the smell in a diffuser and just put it behind your tree. Problem solved. Problem solved. Um, if you could only do one type of investment, stocks or real estate, and you could only pick one, which one would you do? Stocks, hands down. Okay. Real estate is way more work. Okay, that's good to know. Well, it's been awesome to sit down and have a conversation with you, Aaron Lowry. We uh, wish you nothing but the best and hope to hear the, uh, the amazing story to continue. Thank you. It's been really fun to be here. Awesome. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening to the Entrepreneur's Studio podcast. Be sure to check out our entire library of inspiring conversations with industry leaders who've been in your shoes. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We'll see you again next time. And until then, remember, success is no accident, and we're here to help you run and grow a better business.